This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. I am so excited to have my guest Tiffany here with me today. Hi, Tiffany. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Happy to be here. Oh, so cool. Thanks for taking the time. So um, why don't you just kind of walk us back to sort of the beginning for you? Like, where did it all all start for you? Okay. Um, so my I'm a nurse, and my story, it really revolves around my relationship to alcohol and opiates. Um, I think it was probably 2011 or 2012 when I received a prescription for Vicodin for migraines. And I think um, that's a pretty common story in this opiate crisis world (laughs) that uh, we get prescription medication that is addictive and then become addicted to it. Shocker. So um, I was, you know, I think eight or so years into my nursing career highly functional, a single mom, um, running half marathons and kind of living life on the outside that looked pretty put together, pretty dreamy. Um, But I was terminally addicted to to Vicodin and um, beginning to drink pretty heavily as well. So, it, it progressed to the point that I, um, you know, was running out of my own prescription and needing to find ways to obtain. And how was it for you? Because I remember getting a prescription to Vicodin for a dental uh, procedure and um, definitely feeling like way more of a draw to the pills than you know, I thought I ever should and kind of like hurting oh, yeah. a little bit. And it was a dental thing, so it wasn't ongoing. And I can imagine something like migraines, that's obviously ongoing. Like, who knows? You could have a migraine every single day. So it was <laughs> kind of like a gradual thing where you were literally just taking them for the migraines. And then over time, it was like, oh, I don't feel quite good. Or yeah, yeah. just give me some flavor. Sure, exactly. So I, I knew I liked opiates and it, and it was actually because of a dental procedure probably when I was, I don't know, 21, I had my wisdom teeth out. And, um, and I just remember feeling so euphoric just and feeling energy where other people had said, well, oh, they made me nauseous. They made me sleepy. Um, and I, being a nurse, I had a ton of information about these drugs. You know, I, I knew, I knew them inside and out. Um, but I, I, I knew that they made me feel good. So actually when my doctor offered them to me for migraines, I, um, I was looking at disability from work. I was having migraines three or four days a week. I was unable to work. So I would, I was looking for anything, but when she said, how about I give you a prescription for Vicodin that you can just take in case you need it? I said, no, I'm like, I had that memory of, of using Vicodin from the dentist inappropriately, like too many days in a row when I didn't need it anymore. And I said, no. And she said, but you, I just don't want you to be in pain. Mm. And, and I could, uh, I didn't want to be in pain either. And I thought about all these patients I take care of and I, you know, treating their pain and it works for them. So yeah, at first it was definitely just taking it on migraine days and I had boundaries like I would in the beginning have never thought of taking it on a day um, 
that I needed to really be productive. You know, it was like, take it for a migraine, take a nap, kind of feel good. Um, but those boundaries got pushed farther and farther back because, because of the energy and euphoria it gave me. So I had a couple of situations where I had taken a couple of Vicodin and then needed to like go to, um, my daughter was in theater, like go to her play. And I just felt, I felt so social and I felt so good. And I was chatting with other parents and I actually got really positive feedback when I was using Vicodin, um, or opiates of any kind. I would take it, then it became like, Maybe I could take it before I go out for a social event because it makes me more chatty and it makes me more interesting, um, at least temporarily it did. And then um, eventually it crossed a boundary of having a migraine, needing to go to work and thinking, well, instead of staying home, because I had this boundary of like, I would never take a Vicodin before work. That would be insanity. Mm -hmm. Um, at least that's what, you know, that's what I thought, but I had come across other people who had legitimate prescriptions for pain and they took their medication as prescribed appropriately and they still went to work. And so eventually I, I decided that I didn't have that, that code anymore of, um, only take it at certain times. Um, so also, you know, when you're taking opiates, you become physically dependent. So absolutely, I was giving myself that physical feedback of, hey, you feel really good on the days you take Vicodin, and you feel really terrible on the days you don't. And that was starting to click. And so, and actually, there's a rebound headache that you get from opiates. It's a totally inappropriate prescription. Nobody would prescribe opiates for migraines anymore. We just know better. So I was getting more headaches. You know, and there was days where I just started making excuses like, well, I kind of have like my back kind of hurts today. Or um, I started taking it when I was actually running a half marathon, like halfway through take a Vicodin and I had energy and I felt better. Looking back, what I realized I was doing was checking out halfway through the half marathon or halfway through a hundred mile bike ride. I was um, checking out so I didn't have to feel the discomfort of the, of the run or of the ride, right? It was like I could um, get to the finish line, but I didn't have to be present for the second half of that. And that's the same thing I started doing at home and at work. I could check out, kind of, you know, feel a bit euphoric, get more social, do my bills and be kind of like happy about it. I mean, it just, it made everything a little bit better. Mm -hmm. for a while until it made everything way, way worse. Um, and the other thing was I, I'd always had alcohol in my life. Um, I started drinking regularly when I was 15. My father was an alcoholic and that, that had been my go-to when life got hard, you know, to, I'd go home and have beers with my dad, um, especially over age, you know, 18, 21. That's when I would drink at home with my dad. Um, so I found that taking a Vicodin and a drink at the same time was like double the pleasure. It was um, pretty soon the pills didn't really work as well without a drink and drinks didn't work as well without a pill. So I was mixing qu quite a bit, quite a bit. So I, I really wasn't from 2000 and 
11, I think on, I really didn't have any sober days where I wasn't taking one or the other. Um, but yeah, I, I ran out of my prescription. I was getting it refilled once a month, legitimately by my doctor. Um, kind of crazy thing looking back. I think I refilled it for three years consistently every 30 days on the first. I never missed a day. Um, and I was never questioned. Wow. I didn't have to go back in and have a conversation. And um, part of that was being a nurse and having such a functional facade. Mm -hmm. My doctor trusted me explicitly. So I have, I, I don't, um, I don't blame her or my pharmacist. I, you know, I feel like I have liability in that as well. Um, but it's just interesting. It's interesting. And I'm so glad that, you know, laws are changing around controlled substances and, and opiates and things. So, so I was using a 30 day prescription by the end of three years, cause I'd built up this tolerance to it, this physical dependence and tolerance. So I was using 30 pills in just a couple of days. I mean, they weren't lasting. So then I was filling the rest of my month with either, um, using from a friend or family's stash and filling in days with drinking because drinking could help me, uh, you know, not feel the withdrawal as much mm -hmm. from the opiates. Um, so that was kind of my like spiral downward with, with opiates. Um, but it did, it progressed to a point where I um, actually diverted from my workplace. So that's a big part of my story. And we use the fancy word diverted because nobody wants to say that they, they stole or they're a thief, but that's the truth. So I stole from my, my workplace. And um, that is probably one of the, I wouldn't say it's the best thing that happened really, but um, I'm so glad that I did something reckless and was caught. Hmm. I, I don't know you know, if I would be alive, if, if I wouldn't have been caught, I was so good at hiding my addiction. I was so good at it. Um, when it was just my own, you know, biking in at home and drinking, but when it became public with my employer, um, I, I live in Washington state and we have an alternative to discipline program and most states do, but not every state in America. So I was uh, very graciously given a choice to either get treatment or, um, or probably give up my nursing license and definitely lose my job. So that was May of 2016. Um, and by that point, I was um, so deep in the, in, in the addiction. Um, and in so much denial. And I think I, I did get so reckless at work because it was such a cry for help. I mean, I had um, progressed to an injecting narcotics actually. So it had gone like pills didn't work anymore, right? It just, they just weren't good enough. Um, and it's all, it's like ridiculous to think that now because I, I'd never, before it happened, I would have never seen myself as a person who would do that, right? We all, we, I think that, None of us really know what we're capable of until we're faced with um, that kind of pressure. And it seems, yeah, it's a little crazy to think back, but that's really where I was. So, um, and I was, uh, and I was drinking, you know, very, very heavily 
as well. So before, you know, I'd ha I'd need a couple of drinks in the morning before going to work. Um, I worked night shift, so my morning was evening. So really it was, you know, like five in the evening when I would have a drink, but it was, that was my waking up time. I mean, my whole life was just upside down and backwards. Um, so, I, but I was given this opportunity to go to treatment um, and, and take a few months off of work and start to rebuild my life from that point, um, which was pretty terrifying time. I wasn't, um, I still wasn't willing to be honest with very many people. And I had to backtrack a little bit. I had gone to chemical dependency counselors and asked for help a couple of times between 2012 and 2016. Um, <clears throat> I was terrified of losing my job. I was terrified of ending up in the program that I'm in, this alternative to discipline program, um, because of the stigma attached to it. Nurses who are in the program or healthcare professionals that are in the program tend to sort of like disappear. They still work somewhere with a license, but friends never hear from them again. Coworkers never hear from them again. Um, that cloud of shame that they live under is just debilitating. Mm -hmm. um, and I definitely had judgments before I did it myself, before I ended up in that position of being addicted and, and abusing substances, I um, absolutely had judgments about nurses who would do that and just thought, you know, it just shouldn't be done. Um, nobody should steal. A good nurse would never steal. A good nurse would never show up impaired to work. But the, the truth is great nurses do, you know, it happens. They're not mutually exclusive. So I was terrified of becoming, you know, that nurse, but I already was that nurse. It was too late. So, um, so I decided that I, I was going to go ahead and give this treatment program a try. That meant three months off of work um, in an intensive outpatient program, the IOP. Um, and I guess it was, that was the first time that I had more than nine days sober. I think I'd counted up nine days at one point where I was giving my liver a break, <laughs> but I finally managed to get, you know, 20 days. I did relapse a bit in the first few months. That's definitely a big part of my story. Um, but after, after three months in treatment, I was allowed to return to the hospital. And I, that's, um, I think a huge part of my recovery, my, my ability to see myself as worthy and valuable and, um, see that recovery is possible is that my employer didn't just fire me. That's and, awesome. Yeah. Some employers do. Some employers will just call the police and then the nurses sort of left to flounder, you know, and I was a little bit, um, I, I was taken in by administration and, and questioned, sort of interrogated, which they had every right to do. Um, I, I thought I was showing up for a work shift and I was pulled aside and instead questioned. Um, they told me they'd been, you know, sort of watching me from behind the scenes in the pharmacy for a few months. And and then they said, you can um, either 
they didn't even really give me a choice. They just sort of said, we need you to pee in a cup. <laughs> we need, mm-hmm. we need to do a urinalysis and do a drug test. Um, and I sat there for what felt like hours It's probably only, you know, a few minutes trying to figure out how I could get out of it and knowing there's absolutely no way out of it. There was no way. I couldn't just walk away. If I, and I asked him if I could. And they said, well, you're basically admitting guilt if you walk away, mm-hmm. if you're not going to give a UA. And then I spent weeks, um, you know, after giving that UA, waiting for results, not really knowing what the process was or how to navigate, you know, actual treatment. The, um, the counselors I had tried to reach out to prior to that, I would, I I got many different responses, but some of it was, um, I can't talk to you because there's duty to report because you're a nurse. So they would say, just don't say one more thing. Don't tell me about your addiction. Don't say one more thing. I'll have to report you to the department of health. Um, I also heard, you know, so then I thought, okay, I can't really be honest. I don't have a place to be honest. So maybe I'll just give a glimpse of what my addiction is like. Um, and sort of sugarcoat it. And so then, of course, I'd hear back from a counselor, you're not that bad. Sounds like you're not that bad. You're probably going to be just fine. You know, and I wasn't fine. Obviously, I wasn't So fine. you're stuck between this rock and a hard place where you can't actually get help because of what that entails. So you are forced to lie about it. And then you're told that, well, you're not that bad. Yes. Yes. Uh, years of that, off and on. Years of that. And so I just, yeah, I felt like there was no place to be honest. And that's like just a huge part of my recovery and advocacy now is, is that just radical honesty. And, but along with that, there has to be radical self-love. Like I needed to believe that it was going to be okay. And that I, and that I was worth being honest and that it was all going to, you know, if I was willing to be vulnerable, that it was going to turn out okay. So when I really did, oh, did Sorry, were you saying something? No, I was just, I was just <laughs> affirming that as very good. <laughs> yeah. So when I really got into treatment and got into the IOP, it was, um, I was pretty confused about, you know, am I allowed to say anything? Um, I wasn't totally sure what this alternative to discipline meant along, you know, the Department of Health. One really great thing about these programs is they do connect you with other nurses going through. It's a mandatory part of the program is meeting with other nurses once a week. Um, and it's a five year program and uh, it feels like a long time, <laughs> but I, I think that it's, it's an appropriate amount of time because I'm mm-hmm. two and a half years through and I still feel like I'm, you know, learning a lot and have a long way to go in recovery still. It's beautiful that it's five years, actually, because it's it's like, you know, so many things just kick you out the back and yes. that, right? Yes, yes. We think, with, I mean, there's no, really no individualized treatment unless you're, you know, filthy rich. Every insurance program say, okay, you get 28 days. That's what you get to become free from an, addic- an addiction you've probably had for decades, there, there's just absolutely no way. And that's, that's how the IOP, you know, the actual treatment part of it, that's kind of how it was. It was three months, um, three hours, 
three days a week, something like that. And, and not individualized at all. It was a, a total, just a prescription of anybody who comes through these doors, you're going to receive the same type of information. You're going to watch old videos and you're going to um, learn from a 12 step program. And um, we'll give you some ideas about, you know, what you might do at home. Like you might take some supplements that help, or you might do meditation. We're not actually going to teach you any of it here but we're going to give you some flyers and some handouts and um, absolutely not individualized. And I, by the end of those three months was, you know, just furious with the whole treatment center mentality, but um, I'm grateful for it because that passion that I had around it led me to seek out recovery that was meaningful for me. Because I was paying, you know, I had insurance, but it was also paying out of pocket. And it was, and it's my time, you know, it was time meant to find meaning and purpose, meant to come back to wholeness, recovery, sobriety. And it was also time taken from my, my daughter. It was her last year, um, her last summer at home before going off to college. And um, I just feel like, you know, time is really valuable. And if I'm going to sit for three hours three days a week, we better learn something together. We better do something together. <clears throat> so that, um, yeah, it really pushed me to start researching. And I live in a pretty small town. There's not a whole lot available. That's all kind of the same. But 30 miles away, I found a treatment center that uh, is run by a nurse who did the same program I'm in seven years ago, um, which was, you know, awesome that we had that to relate to each other. And he offers neurofeedback. He has counselors that are skilled in um, Buddhist-inspired recovery, so meditation-inspired recovery, not even, not meditation-inspired, but meditation-guided recovery. Um, and, and it's very individualized. And so I am so, you know, just grateful that I didn't settle for status quo and, um, and reached out to find something that really, you know, worked well for me. So on one hand, I sort of immersed myself in recovery. Um, that's when I first, I heard your podcast. I started listening to podcasts the first three months. I don't think I listened to any music, any, anything other than recovery-based audible books and podcasts for three months straight. I just felt like I had to fill my brain with positive recovery messages. That was so important to me. Awesome. Um, yeah. On the other hand, I still wasn't telling anyone. I didn't even, my daughter was 18 and I was pretending to go to work at night. I was still so, so filled with shame. Um, and that, that lasted probably the first six to eight months of recovery before I started to allow myself to come out of my shell and start and, and realized that um, living anonymously wasn't going to work for me. It was still a double life. Um, absolutely a double life. So a year though, a year to almost the day that the administration um, took me in that room and interrogated and had me do a UA, I was standing at in front of hundreds of nurses at a conference telling my story so somewhere between that you know like eight to twelve months of sobriety 
I, um, I found a way to be open and honest and was able to share with my family and with others. And, and I, I think that's where like my real recovery started when I didn't feel like I had to live as, um, the secret nurse addict, like (laughs) in the basement, you know, where I wasn't allowed to be, uh, myself, I, I guess. So, so from there it's, um, gosh, that was May, 2017. And, um, I then found an organization called She Recovers and got involved with them. Yep. Which is just, um, like recovery on steroids. It's amazing. And decided that I really wanted to do something with what I'd learned. I wanted to be able to give back. Um, and so I looked into a coaching program and became, um, a dual certified life and recovery coach. And since then have been just trying to share that message of, um, of radical self-love and how we are really, you know, valuable and, and worthy. And, um, a, and a big part of that has been also like learning mindfulness. So finding that, that mindfulness meditation inspired treatment was, um, huge turning point for me. That's awesome. I love that. And I love that, you know, you're just willing to share your story from the perspective of a nurse, because I know that people um, reaching out to me, so many doctors, so many nurses, so many people who feel like they have to do it completely anonymously, you know, if they're going to participate in a Facebook group, they have to invent a, you know, an alternative profile. And it's not even in their minds. It's like real because they could, you know, very much lose their, their livelihood. And so I think it's really inspiring that you've, um, you know, chosen to go the route of being very unanonymous and very much sharing the story and everything else. I think it's beautiful. It's very cool. Yeah. I'm, I think I'm really lucky that I have the support of the organization that I work for. It's, that was, it's just really lucky. I can see where some healthcare professionals would not be able to, even if they want to be this open, they would not be able to. Um, but hopefully I can still be a bit of an inspiration to, you know, even if you need to be anonymous in some areas of your life, just know that like, you're not alone, right? I think we just feel so isolated and alone when we can't share and we can't be real. Um, So hopefully I can help a little bit. I mean, I get, I get these emails a few times a month that just are so rewarding and heartbreaking and beautiful. Um, just saying, saying thank you, you know, for being, for being that person and being willing to, you know, to be out loud and, and have helped a, you know, a few healthcare professionals direct them towards maybe a treatment place that is safe for them. Um, or maybe some don't have any idea that these programs exist in their state or don't know that you can actually make an, a, a completely confidential anonymous phone call to the program. Just because you call doesn't mean you're signing up. They don't save your name. They don't automatically turn you into Department of Health. You can actually call the program and just ask questions. I had no idea that that, I mean, I probably would have done that a few years prior you know, had I known that I could do that. So, um, 
yeah, I hope that, that some in information sharing that I am able to do is, is helpful to others who are in my place. That's great. I love that so much. Um, so if people want to learn more about you, where can they find you, Tiffany? You can find me at www.recoverandrise.com. That's my coaching business. Um, you can learn about my story and um, how to work together from that site. And then my personal blog, which gives a whole lot more of like the dirt side of things and what's really going on in my life, being single and sober and trying to figure all this out is um, scrubbedcleanrn.com. Very cool. That's awesome. I love that title. That's really fun. <laughs> um, so I'll ask you the question that I always sort of close podcasts with, but if you could go back and, you know, tell Tiffany who is um, maybe in that room with the UA and uh, feeling so much probably fear and trepidation about like, what is this going to be like? What is this going to do about, you know, where you've come and, and what life's like now and give her some encouragement. What would you tell her? Hmm. That is a great question. That makes me teary eyed. Um, I would say what I, what I tell people now is be brave enough to be vulnerable, that people generally want to help and they are generally compassionate, um, and that honesty is going to take you farther than your dreams can imagine. And, um, Staying secretive and staying in the dark is just going to fuel your addiction. Yeah. So be brave. I think that's so true. I think that, um, you know, there's a, a saying that uh, shame cannot survive vulnerability. Yeah, yeah and, absolutely. Yeah, it's just the great connector. And when you can tell your own story, um, you know, you just, you just literally kill the part of you that is afraid. Um, I mean, it's not like, it's not scary, but you kill the shame very definitively because it just can't survive it. It can't survive that because you realize, we realize we're all in it together and shame is so built on secrecy. So um, that's just really cool. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed the conversation and I'm really excited that, you know, especially from the perspective of just like a nurse and in the medical profession and what, what impact that has. So I, I love what you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Let me ask you a question. What is better than change? Lasting change, of course. And if you've had trouble making change stick, either with alcohol or in any other area of your life, you are in for a treat. I created the 100 Days of Lasting Change to ensure that we don't just change for a moment, but we truly transform for a lifetime. And this program is so close to my heart. Thousands of people have been through it and their results are incredible. But don't take my word for it. Check it out at thisnakedmind.com forward slash 100 days. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.